Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, suicide, medical malpractice, sexual assault, and domestic violence that may be unsettling. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Tightness in the stomach, a lump in the throat, a hitch between breaths. Intuition serves as the body's roadmap meant to guide us through uncertainty. When we encounter harmful situations or people, it's a safety mechanism warning us to retreat. Many refer to it as gut instinct. But despite intuition's loud cries, not everyone heeds its commands. This was certainly the case for those who knew Dr. Martin McNeil. Throughout his life, his behavior presented red flags. But his loved ones ignored their gut feelings that something about the doctor just wasn't right. Unfortunately, no one realized just how correct their hunches were until Martin committed the unthinkable. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every year, thousands of medical students take the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm, but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play it God. However, some doctors break that oath. They choose to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate these doctors, nurses, and medical professionals. We'll explore the specifics of how medical killers operate not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm thrilled to be able to assist Alistair in providing some medical insight into the case of Dr. Martin McNeil, an osteopath hell-bent on fabrication, manipulation, and murder. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on Martin McNeil, a Utah-based doctor who turned an ordinary facelift into an opportunity to kill. Today, we'll discuss Martin's beginnings as a fraudster, including his biggest con, fabricating transcripts to enter medical school. We'll also examine how his dark proclivities impacted his marriage, leading to infidelity and murder. Next time, we'll explore Martin's deepening relationship with his mistress and the investigation that revealed his selfish scheme. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. On April 4th, 2007, 50-year-old Michelle McNeil lay in bed, writhing in pain. Her eyes were covered with surgical patches and surrounded by bruising. After undergoing a facelift surgery just 24 hours prior, she now faced the brunt of her recovery. As days passed, Michelle braved the pain with the help of her daughter, Alexis. But when her mother had sufficiently healed, Alexis returned to medical school in Nevada, leaving Michelle in the care of her husband, Martin McNeil. 
For weeks, he'd urged her to get the procedure. Now, he encouraged his wife to take pill after pill to dull the pain. The sedation was too much for Michelle's body, causing her to vomit. She barely wiped her mouth before her husband insisted she down more painkillers. As Michelle faded into a deep slumber, Martin smiled, pleased with himself. He hadn't taken her life, but it would only be a few pills more before he did. Martin McNeil had been surrounded by substance abuse as long as he could remember since his childhood in Camden, New Jersey. His unstable parents suffered from alcoholism and regularly got violent in front of their son. When the two finally divorced in the 1960s, Martin's mother became the sole caregiver for her six children. According to Martin, she did sex work to provide for them, often inside their home. The circumstances would have been hard for any young boy, but Martin and his siblings were particularly affected. Martin coped with a deep-seated resentment for his mum and claimed that he even tried to kill her when he was just eight years old. But his homicidal behavior didn't stop there. According to Shanna Hogan, author of The Stranger She Loved, one evening in 1986, Martin found his brother Rufus weak and nearly unconscious in the family bathtub. It appeared he had attempted to harm himself. But rather than seek help for his brother, Martin later told somebody that he held Rufus underwater and drowned him. Rufus died, and the death was never investigated. Instead, the fatality was described as the result of an apparent drug overdose. Had investigators taken a closer look at Rufus's body, they would have likely noticed telltale signs indicating what truly happened to him in his final moments. When someone's held underwater for an extended time, death from drowning will occur. A person might reflexively gasp for air, which brings water into their trachea or windpipe, causing it to close. Someone also may attempt to hold their breath, which can trigger a laryngospasm, which is a spasm of the vocal cords that ultimately seals the trachea. Either way, the resulting lack of oxygen renders them unconscious, water ends up entering their lungs, and they die from asphyxiation. Autopsies on recently drowned people may reveal things like water in the stomach, trachea, lungs, paranasal sinuses, the main bronchus, and the mastoid cells, which are all air-filled pockets in the cranium. There also may be a bloody, frothy foam in and around the nasal cavity and in the back of the throat. Additionally, a drowning victim may have bruises, scratches, or an assailant's tissue under their fingernails from fighting back. There must have been a few of these distinguishing factors that negated the overdose ruling, but it seems a proper medical examination was overlooked. With no consequences for his violent tendencies, Martin's dark behavior continued. Martin was known among classmates for his unpredictable personality, which earned him the nickname Martin the Martian. But despite his social alienation, Martin soon found his dark, dramatic ways were best engaged in the theater. On stage, Martin was a natural. He flourished in moments of pretend. It was when those heightened theatrics bled into real life that Martin began to concern his teachers and peers. His moods swung between manic and depressive states. If someone crossed him, he'd shoot ice-cold stares. Eventually, this behavior mandated a mental evaluation where he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Sadly, it appears Martin wasn't able to find effective treatment as a teenager. However, the diagnosis sparked a new, voracious interest in psychology and psychiatry. Martin became fascinated with human behavior and soon discovered that he could employ his acting talent to control how others responded to him aka lying and manipulation. He utilized these skills to alter the course of his life. In 1973, 17-year-old Martin set his sights on the military. His intention was simple, to get as far away from his family as possible. Though his young age meant he needed parental consent to join, Martin bypassed that step by lying about his age. 
Though his methods were less than ethical, Martin successfully joined the ranks of the US Army. Unfortunately, the armed forces didn't turn out to be the escape Martin had envisioned. He didn't obey commands and often bumped heads with his superiors. Adding insult to injury, Martin's bipolar symptoms only seemed to worsen over the next two years. When he reported hearing voices, his superiors ordered a psychiatric examination, resulting in a new mental health diagnosis, latent schizophrenia. Scientists are still learning about schizophrenia. What we know is that it impacts the levels of proper functioning of two key neurotransmitters in the brain, dopamine and glutamate. We also know it's a complex long-term mental disorder that impairs daily functioning and requires treatment. The condition can interfere with someone's cognitive ability, their overall behavior, and their relationship with reality. In order to diagnose someone with schizophrenia, it's important to first conduct a physical examination to make sure symptoms aren't the result of other health issues. It's important to screen for drug and alcohol use, and doctors may even run imaging studies like MRIs or CT scans to be extra thorough. If the physical exam reveals nothing of note, it's then time for the patient to be evaluated by a psychiatrist. This mental health professional asks about the patient's moods, thoughts, delusions, family life, drug and alcohol use, and any violent or suicidal ideations. They then may use the latest edition of the Diagnostic Manual of Mental Disorders to help guide them in their diagnosis. Going back to our story, Alistair, latent schizophrenia is actually an outdated term used to describe a person experiencing symptoms of schizophrenia, but without the frequent and prolonged psychotic episodes. Today, this would describe schizotypal personality disorder, which is certainly schizophrenia adjacent. However, people with schizotypal disorders tend to be more aware that their delusional thinking is separate from reality, while people with schizophrenia typically can't make this distinction. Martin's intense mood swings, misconduct, mania and depression, and his reported auditory hallucinations all speak to his bipolar diagnosis as well. Ultimately, mental disorders can be difficult to diagnose because they're all nuanced and spectrum-oriented. However, we've learned that the correct diagnosis will lead to an effective treatment plan and a better quality of life. For Martin McNeil, however, the diagnosis meant he'd lose his job. At 19, he was discharged from the army. Desperate for direction, he set his sights on a new interest, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints commonly known as the Mormon faith. After missionaries in his community approached him, Martin quickly immersed himself in their teachings. It's possible he was most drawn to the church's principle of God's favor, or perhaps he enjoyed the prospect of embarking on his own mission to spread the religion's message. Whatever the draw, he maintained his involvement in the church when he enrolled at St. Martin's University in Washington State. He pursued degrees in sociology and psychology. In 1977, after just two years of college, 21-year-old Martin graduated and moved to Mission Viejo, California, a town with a substantial Mormon community. By all accounts, Martin's life seemed to be headed in a positive direction. But Martin still felt malicious urges. He tried to sate them with dark TV shows about crime but he couldn't just watch. One evening, Martin flipped on a 60-minute segment on check forgery. He was instantly enthralled. The narrator's descriptions made the whole con seem so simple. The show strongly cautioned viewers that the law always catches up to crooks eventually. But Martin wholly ignored this. He disclosed to a close friend that he could pull off a much more sophisticated version of the scheme from TV. He was sure his method was foolproof. Martin started by obtaining the birth certificate of someone random, which he used to apply for a driver's license. Then, he used that license to open a bank account. The account balance was near zero, but it yielded a checkbook, the key to three days of lavish shopping. Martin's purchases ran the gamut, diamond rings and watches, couches and chairs, TVs and a full-sized refrigerator, shoes along with 60 pairs of socks. He bought car tires, bicycles, a grandfather clock, 
and a year's supply of chocolate-covered cherries. Grand total? Roughly $35,000. Not a bad haul, until a store employee flagged a check for possible fraud. The jig was up. Within days, police arrested Martin, charging him with forgery, theft, and fraud. Though Martin had no problem bragging about his criminal genius to friends, he played a different character in the courthouse. He told the court psychiatrist that he didn't know what compelled him to commit the crimes. Despite his hazy testimony and his previous schizophrenia diagnosis, Martin was found mentally fit to stand trial. The proceedings went on throughout 1977. While he was still fighting the charges, Martin attended a church-sponsored singles event in Mission Viejo. Martin needed a new reason to be excited about life, and that day, he found it in a young woman named Michelle Somers. Coming up, Martin McNeil weasels his way into marriage. Every so often, something so impactful happens, it has the power to capture the attention of a whole country. An event so deadly or dumbfounding, it has no choice but to live on in infamy. Hi, Parcasters. It's Ashley Flowers, and I'm exposing the most sinister cases from the darkest corners of the globe in my new true crime limited series, International Infamy. Every Tuesday, come along as I guide you on a wicked world tour. 15 different countries, 15 infamous crimes. Take a trip to Iceland where six people confessed to a murder that never actually happened. Journey to Mexico where a Lucha Libre wrestler moonlights as a serial killer. And travel to New Zealand where two friends hatch a deadly plan to become famous. Each episode of International Infamy explores the twists and turns of a notoriously high-profile case, zeroing in on the cultural details which make the crime unique to its location, and explaining why it couldn't have happened anywhere else. Follow my new Spotify original from ParCast, International Infamy with Ashley Flowers, and catch a new episode every week. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Martin McNeil's early life was nothing short of an ongoing train wreck. After allegedly attempting to kill his mother, Martin joined the army to escape the family he despised. However, he was quickly discharged due to his latent schizophrenia. After a brief stint studying psychology and sociology, Martin took his knowledge shopping with forged checks. After he was caught in 1977, 21-year-old Martin faced criminal fraud charges. Most people in his position would feel compelled to clean up their act. But Martin simply looked for a new role and a new audience. He set his sights on 20-year-old Michelle Somers. The young, blonde beauty queen had a vastly different background from Martin's. Raised in Concord, California, an idyllic city northeast of San Francisco, she'd had a glowing reputation. Her track record as a straight-A student, a violinist, and homecoming queen only added to Michelle's natural radiance. But Martin and Michelle did share two things in common. They were both one among many siblings and involved in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. After meeting at a singles event organized by the church, both felt immediate chemistry. Martin was drawn to Michelle's goodness and innocence, while Michelle loved Martin's piercing gray eyes and polished charm. And because she met him through her church, Michelle assumed Martin was guided by a firm moral compass. With no knowledge of Martin's criminal charges, Michelle fell hard for his performance, and they quickly became a couple. 
Michelle's family wasn't so blinded by Martin's magnetism. Michelle's younger sister, Linda, found him arrogant. Whenever he'd visit the family, he'd stop at mirrors to gawk at himself. And her mother, Helen, felt unsettled meeting him. Her instincts were confirmed when her church's bishop gave her a phone call urging Helen to keep her daughter away from Martin. Though the pious man refused to explain further, Michelle's mother needed no convincing. She was far more concerned by what her daughter told the family. Michelle divulged to her sister that Martin had a controlling nature that often led to vicious arguments. Once, as they argued in Martin's car, Michelle said she wanted to break up. Suddenly, Martin pulled a gun from the center console. Holding it to his head, Martin confessed his love and swore to end his life if she dared to leave him. With no way out, Michelle stayed. Only then, when he was sure of her loyalty, did Martin reveal that he had pending felony charges. In his version of the story, the elaborate scheme was reduced to a couple of bad checks. He led Michelle to excuse it as a one-off incident from his past. Michelle's loved ones weren't so convinced. As their suspicions rose, the Somers meticulously dug into the details of Martin's criminal case and his discharge from the army. The more they learned, the more they feared for Michelle's life. To their dismay, the relationship between Michelle and Martin only intensified. After just a few months of dating, Martin suggested an elopement. Their rushed marriage would sever the ties between Michelle and her close-knit family, a textbook tactic of abusive control. On February 21, 1978, 22-year-old Martin and 21-year-old Michelle were united as husband and wife. Michelle's parents and siblings were not in attendance. Just four months later, Martin took a plea deal and served six months for his crimes, leaving his new wife alone. But she stayed married to him. Upon his release in 1979, 23-year-old Martin was put on a three-year felony probation, which required him to stay under the close supervision of an officer in California. Despite this, Martin managed to forge college transcripts and use them to apply to a medical school in Mexico. When he was accepted, Martin apparently convinced his case manager to let him leave the country to attend. The decision to move wasn't so easy for Michelle, who was pregnant with their first child. It didn't occur to Martin that his wife might not want to move out of the country with a newborn. His priorities simply trumped hers and her loyalty made her easy to control. So shortly after Michelle gave birth to their daughter Rachel, the three moved to Guadalajara. But there was no time to settle down. After only one semester, Martin transferred to the College of Osteopathic Medicine of the Pacific in Pomona, California. The family of three left and returned to the US within less than a year. With credits from his semester in Mexico under his belt, 24-year-old Martin fully devoted himself to his studies. Though he did make time to embrace at least one aspect of the Mormon faith, starting a large family. Michelle gave birth to their second child, Vanessa, in 1981, and then another daughter, Alexis, a year later. By the time Martin graduated in 1983, he was a father to three young girls. Despite this, Martin continued to pursue his goal of medicine without regard for his family. When he found a medical residency in Queens, New York, the McNeils relocated once again. Residencies help medical students apply their education and skills under the supervision of experienced medical professionals. Over a minimum of three years, these programs expose future doctors to real-life hospital scenarios and give students a deeper insight into how certain diseases arc in their progressions and treatments. Residencies also enable students to find comfort within specific medical fields and teach them how to work in concert with other healthcare specialists. Martin's osteopathic residency would have taken three to four years to complete and would have offered a variety of subspecialties for him to pursue. 
Osteopaths, which are known as DOs, practice within all medical specialties and incorporate a holistic approach to medicine. DOs work in fields that include emergency medicine, surgery, geriatrics, and even psychiatry. This residency experience would have given Martin an enhanced understanding of the musculoskeletal system, which is the interconnected network of nerves, muscles, and bones. It would have also helped him hone some of his surgical skills. My own residency was very helpful for me. When I started, I remember feeling really nervous, but I was surprised at how fast all my medical training became second nature. Those years gave me confidence as a physician, and they helped guide me into my current field. They also allowed me to establish relationships with other specialists that I still work with today. There's no question that Martin's osteopathic residency was an exciting and challenging time in his life. After completing his residency, Martin set his sights on Utah given its strong connection to the Mormon Church. There, his young family would lend him a respectable image, though it seems to have been only an image. Martin took a dry, authoritarian approach to his familial duties. Luckily, Michelle proved to be an exemplary mother. She took an active role in the kids' busy lives and gave birth to their fourth child, Damien, in 1985. Through this time, Martin continued to pursue his medical license. With education, a residency, and compounding hours of practice under his belt, Martin finally became licensed as an osteopathic physician in 1987. From there, he charmed his clients at various hospitals and clinics, but the reputation he had to uphold as a doctor didn't free him from his desire to manipulate. Somewhat strangely, after Martin had secured his legitimacy as a doctor, he pursued a law degree at Brigham Young University, though he would never go on to practice. It's very possible that Martin just wanted to defend himself better if he got into trouble with the law again, or rather, when. In 1990, the same year he earned his law degree, 34-year-old Martin got back to his old cons. This time, however, it wasn't random strangers that Martin preyed on to fuel his greed. When patients came to him at a hospital in Sandy, Utah, he'd bill Medicaid for services he'd never actually provided them. But his scheme was short-lived. Before 1990 came to a close, Martin was caught. He pleaded no contest for his profiteering scheme, and he was banned from participating in Medicaid billing for 12 years. Though this made it difficult for him to do some aspects of his job, he was still able to practice medicine. Medicaid laws vary state to state, and a revocation of a medical license is largely contingent on the severity of the charges, especially in cases of fraud. If a doctor gets convicted of Medicaid fraud, it's a good indicator that they're psychologically unfit to be a healthcare provider. Not only does it represent dishonesty, it also affirms that the physician is more aligned with the financial aspect of medicine than actual patient care. Insurance fraud is something that never really went away in the medical community, but it's much less common than it used to be. In recent years, there's been much more scrutiny over how healthcare professionals charge patients thanks to advancements in analyzing billing patterns. The 2009 Affordable Care Act also allocated $350 million to legally pursue doctors involved in health insurance fraud. And today, penalties are very harsh for offending practitioners. Despite Martin's blatant cheating of the system, he was still permitted to practice as a physician. It's unclear how his family reacted to Martin's charges of Medicaid fraud. But based on his past manipulation, it's easy to imagine he played the victim and convinced them it was all just a misunderstanding. With his family on his side, evading reputational damage within his church community was a walk in the park. He conveniently landed a position in medical law in Washington, relying on his new degree from BYU. Though little is known about what Martin did there, he didn't stay long. Less than a year after bringing his wife and children with him to the Pacific Northwest, Martin accepted a full-time position at Brigham Young University's health center. As a result, he uprooted his young family once again. As a Brigham Young University doctor, Martin doled out a slew of misdiagnoses. 
Having entered medical school with the help of forged documents, it's no surprise Martin failed to make accurate assessments and provide adequate care. Attributing the wrong disorders to patients only increased their pain and delayed healing. As if this wasn't enough, Martin also took advantage of his position of power to strike up sexual affairs with his patients. One patient said Martin manipulated her into a sexual relationship because he knew she wouldn't go to the authorities. This behavior also highlights that Martin was likely using the church, which prizes nuclear families and marital loyalty, as a cover. Much like his other cons, Martin's family man image was just an act. When Brigham Young University received formal complaints about Martin's behavior, they seemed to be more interested in saving their own reputation as an institution. Without any news coverage or public warnings detailing Martin's predatory actions, Martin resigned in 1998. But the bad rep he made for himself there did little to halt his future job prospects. In fact, just one year later, in 1999, BYU permitted Martin to return. Seemingly, the same issues of misconduct arose and Martin quickly left again. But he had no intention of burying his head in the sand. Just two years after his resignation from BYU, 44-year-old Martin charmed his way into a job as medical director of the Utah State Developmental Center, a position directly appointed by the governor. The center served patients with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Martin worked in urgent care, managed doctors and nurses, and was in charge of certain administrative duties. How Martin was able to secure such a high-powered position with his record of misconduct is a mystery. However, it seemed Martin was sitting at the pinnacle of his fraud empire. Backed by the governor, it was hard to imagine how he would ever be held accountable for his history of lies. But while his professional life had taken an optimistic turn, his home life was grimmer. In August 2000, Michelle caught Martin watching pornography, a major taboo in his religion. Furious that he'd been found, Martin ran at her with a butcher knife. Luckily, their 15-year-old son Damien pulled the knife from his father's hands before any harm was done. However, the commotion stirred the attention of neighbors who placed a call to the police. Like all his past brushes with the law, Martin smooth-talked authorities and assured them that all was fine in the McNeil household. Terrified of her husband, Michelle stayed silent. She had four children to protect, and divorce was unthinkable for her at the time. She longed for a peaceful solution to their problems. And so did her husband. He just had a very different solution in mind. Up next, Martin devises a horrifying plot. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, gift mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Now, back to the story. In 2000, 44-year-old Dr. Martin McNeil's career had reached a peak. 
He held a prestigious job as medical director of the Utah State Developmental Center. However, his marriage was on the rocks. Tensions escalated on multiple occasions when Michelle McNeil caught Martin watching pornography. In one particular instance, he threatened her with a butcher knife in front of their children. And despite the discord, their house grew more crowded. When their single 18-year-old daughter Vanessa got pregnant in 2000, Michelle and Martin decided they would adopt their granddaughter. And somehow, this prompted them to take in three more children. This time, from Ukraine. Martin once again put on the loving dad character while leaving all the actual responsibility to Michelle, who now cared for eight children. Martin's eyes were busy elsewhere on other women. In 2005, just two years after his family had adopted four children, 49-year-old Martin began having an affair with a woman named Anna Osborne Walthall. The two met when Anna opened a laser hair removal salon. To operate the business, Anna needed to partner with a doctor, as Utah required that all cosmetic medical facilities be overseen by a licensed physician. Martin fit the bill. While working with Martin, however, Anna was shocked at how readily Martin divulged the darker details of his life. He revealed that he'd attempted to murder his mother and successfully drowned his brother. He also told Anna that mercy killings were something he was well-practiced in. Though Anna was stunned, she didn't tell anyone about it. And neither did any of the other women Martin bragged to. Anna Walthall was just one of several women Martin seduced. Through the early 2000s, Martin courted a number of women in online chat rooms. He eventually landed on the online profile of a nurse named Gypsy Willis. In her profile, Gypsy listed quantum physics as one of her interests, the perfect conversation starter for Martin. From there, their chemistry was instantaneous. They both enjoyed intellectual conversation, but more than that, they were both master manipulators. Gypsy's sister Julie described her as calculated and malicious, a woman who wasn't above deceiving and hurting others for her own gain. And in the fall of 2005, the object of Gypsy's desire was Martin McNeil. Unfortunately, this meant that the target of her malice was his wife. At home with her roommates, Gypsy openly fantasized about getting rid of Michelle McNeil. She reportedly went so far as suggesting she might cut the brake lines in Michelle's car. For whatever reason, her roommates didn't take Gypsy seriously, but Martin did. His relationship with Gypsy offered him an escape that he wanted to make into a reality. So, as a first step, Martin put Gypsy up in an apartment. There, he could indulge in his sexual desires away from the perceptive eye of his wife and the moral obligations of his religion. Martin frequently told Michelle he was working late while actually spending his evenings with Gypsy. Suspicious, Michelle drove past the Utah State Developmental Center on multiple occasions looking for her husband's car. It was rarely there. The knowledge that Martin was lying only increased Michelle's desperation to uncover the truth. When she came across Gypsy's number on Martin's cell phone bill, she asked her daughter Alexis to investigate. After tracing the number, Alexis told Michelle the woman's name, and Michelle approached Martin. He wasn't swayed by her pleas for honesty or renewed closeness. In fact, Martin's urge to leave Michelle only grew. He didn't want to love Gypsy in secret anymore, so Martin devised a plot to achieve it. In 2006, Martin moved the family to Pleasant Grove, Utah against Michelle's wishes. After separating his wife from her friends, Martin began criticizing her image. She had wrinkles, she needed a facelift. Martin insisted that the procedure would increase her confidence and that it would be a gift from him to her in honor of her milestone 50th birthday. Michelle was hesitant, but acquiesced with the hopes it would reignite the spark in their marriage. Martin 
selected the surgeon. And on April 3rd, 2007, Michelle went under the knife for seven hours. Meanwhile, Martin pulled the surgeon aside and requested Michelle be prescribed a specific list of medications. They were stronger than what the surgeon would have normally given to a post-op patient, but Martin's persuasive tactics were hard to oppose. The surgeon agreed, prescribing Ambien, Valium, Percocet, Phenagan, and Lortab. Ambient, Valium, Percocet, Phenergan, and Lortab are used as sedatives and painkillers and act on the central nervous system as depressants. This means they slow brain activity, which also slows autonomic processes like heart rate, digestion, and respiration. Ambient is considered a hypnotic, which induces sleep, and Valium is a benzodiazepine, which causes drowsiness. Percocet and Lortab are both heavily sedating opiates, and Phenergan is actually a calming antihistamine used to smooth out the agitating effects of painkillers. A surgeon should avoid prescribing all of these drugs at the same time because they could be fatal if taken together. Because they have the potential to so powerfully depress the central nervous system and have different mechanisms of action, mixing them would have a synergistic effect leading to a heightened physiologic response. In other words, taking these medications together could cause a dangerous over-sedation and lead to death from respiratory failure, cardiac arrest, or arrhythmia. This drug combination would also severely compromise someone's motor skills, which is what CNS depressants do. This impairment opens someone up to a deadly fall, numerous accidents, and even a risk of choking while swallowing. It's hard to picture any occasion where a doctor would prescribe all of these drugs at once. It's just irresponsible and unsafe. Of course, Martin was well aware of these drug interactions. When Michelle returned home after the successful surgery, Martin began overdosing her. After she got sick, he forced more pills down her throat. He'd ensure the drugs took effect, no matter what. However, his daughter Alexis posed a challenge. She was home from medical school during the first several days of Michelle's recovery to take care of her. And when things went south for her mum, she noticed. Persuasive as always, Martin convinced Alexis the overmedication was an accident and paused his scheme. Martin patiently bided his time, sitting like a snake in grass. Soon enough, Alexis would head back to school and he could strike. Before Alexis left for school on April 10, 2007, Michelle made an alarming request. As her daughter helped her take a bath, Michelle leaned in and, speaking in a hushed tone, said, If anything happens to me, make sure it wasn't your dad. Alexis found the comment concerning, but wrote it off as hyperskepticism. Naturally, Alexis was displeased that her father had given her mom too many pills earlier that week, but she didn't want to believe her own father was capable of murder. The next morning, on April 11th, Alexis called to check on her mother. She was relieved to hear Michelle was doing well. She'd stopped taking the majority of her pain medications and was returning to her usual routines. Michelle even said that Martin was being uncharacteristically kind. Alexis exhaled in relief. It seemed like her parents' dynamic was moving in a healthy direction. But nothing could have been further from the truth. Though we don't know exactly what happened in the hours that followed, crime scene evidence suggests that after she talked to Alexis that morning, Martin drugged Michelle with more painkillers. It's likely he crushed them up into her breakfast. Once the drugs took effect, Martin carried Michelle from the bedroom into the bathroom, placed her in the bathtub, and held her head underwater. Drugging Michelle made it easier for Martin to kill her, Alistair. As we talked about earlier, sedatives and painkillers depress or slow the central nervous system. With the drugs in her system, Michelle's fight or flight, that cortisol-driven stress response, wouldn't adequately trigger. This is because by slowing brain activity, CNS depressants effectively slow the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis in its ability to produce cortisol, aka the stress hormone. 
These meds would have robbed Michelle of her survival reflexes, along with her ability to breathe normally. Her respirations would have been shallow, causing her oxygen levels to be compromised. It normally takes less than four minutes for death to occur from oxygen deprivation, but someone high on sedatives, like Michelle, would die faster because of their slowed and inefficient respiratory rate. They'd also lack the motor coordination and mental focus to defend themselves, which would hasten the process. Sadly, with the medications Michelle had in her system, she had no hope of fighting for her life. As his wife's corpse floated in the tub, Martin faced the task of making her death look like an accident. First, he called his daughter Alexis and left a voicemail. He said Michelle was doing too much too soon she was getting up out of bed and not resting. He begged Alexis to call her mother to talk some sense into her. Alexis found this message strange since her mother seemed well when they spoke on the phone just an hour ago. She called her mother anyway, but of course couldn't reach her. Around 11 a.m., Martin returned to work, leaving his wife's body in the bathtub. Ironically, the developmental center was hosting a safety fair that day, helping employees to learn about safety practices. Martin tried to act normal, but his panic was palpable. Fellow employees say he was hostile and jumpy. One co-worker even remembers Martin begging to have his picture taken, as though the safety fair was meant to be his alibi. A fair guess, since he only stayed at the fair for half an hour. Around 11.30 a.m., Martin left to pick up his six-year-old daughter, Ada, from school. When they arrived home 10 minutes later, Martin told Ada to go find her mother. While Ada searched the house, Martin sat calmly in the kitchen, fully aware of the devastating scene his daughter would walk into. Ada eventually found her mother's body in the bathtub. Perhaps she tried to wake her her attempts increasingly desperate. Ada rushed to her father, grabbed his hand, and pulled him to the bathroom. She knew something was terribly wrong. Once they finally reached the bathroom, Martin turned on the theatrics, feigning upset. He told Ada to find a neighbor for help. As the little girl ran out of the house, Martin called 911. The operator struggled to make out Martin's responses to her questions. It was difficult for her to even get an address. Police wound up at the wrong house. It's likely Martin intentionally gave the wrong address to delay them. Despite the operator's attempts to calm Martin, he continued his erratic shouting and soon hung up altogether. At some point, Ada returned with a neighbor who helped Martin remove Michelle's body from the tub and lay her on the bathroom floor. When the 911 dispatcher received another call from Martin, they asked him to stay on the line, but he hung up again. However, Martin couldn't delay the police forever. When they showed up at his home at 11.55 a.m., Michelle lay on the bathroom floor. Martin seemed to be attempting CPR. The officers moved Michelle's body to the master bedroom so that they had more room and performed CPR themselves. Michelle expelled about a half gallon of water, which was a lot, given that her husband had allegedly already performed chest compressions. Despite the police and paramedics' best efforts, Michelle could not be saved. While Michelle stood a better chance at survival had her husband attempted to perform CPR, he likely did nothing to revive her. It's possible he did, but the half gallon of water emergency responders expelled, along with his actions, say otherwise. It's more likely that he feigned a CPR performance in an attempt to evade suspicion. Martin wasn't lacking for CPR training, so he should have been able to bring this water up like the emergency responders. These chest compressions were most likely a display. Though Michelle was dead, Martin's show wasn't over yet. He checked his phone to find a multitude of missed calls from his daughter, Alexis. Worried sick, she'd called her home repeatedly since receiving his cryptic voicemail that morning. When Martin's phone rang again, he finally answered his daughter and coldly revealed that her mum wasn't breathing. Then, he abruptly hung up. Alexis's reality was shattered. Without a second thought, she got in her car and sped to the airport. 
In just a few days, the fear her mother whispered in her ear had come to fruition. Behind the wheel, Alexis was devastated and hysterical, screaming in utter disbelief. He killed her. He killed her. He killed her. And when she got home, Alexis would do anything to prove it. Next week, Martin's relationship with Gypsy progresses in the wake of his wife's death, and his children start an investigation into his hidden past. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you so much, Alistair, for having me. For more information on Martin McNeil, among the many sources we used, we found the book The Stranger She Loved by Shanna Hogan extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite Spotify originals from Parcast, like Medical Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Courtney Taylor, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and Lauren DeLille, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Hi, listeners, it's Ashley Flowers, and here's a quick reminder to check out my new true crime limited series, International Infamy. Every Tuesday, I'm taking you across the globe to look at 15 of the most notorious crimes from 15 different countries. Some stories are sure to shock, some may leave you stumped, but all are quite the trip. Follow my new series, International Infamy with Ashley Flowers. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.